Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. A mentality of assisted suicide is becoming increasingly prevalent in the medical field. Today's guest, Chris Carrera, a physician assistant practicing in Worcester, Massachusetts, speaks from her personal experiences on this important topic. In the first of two podcasts by Ms. Carrera, she begins by identifying social factors that have led to the rise of the assisted suicide mentality in our country. She then explains how and why some medical associations, particularly the Massachusetts Medical Society, have shifted their position on assisted suicide from opposed to neutral. Lastly, she discusses specific ways that the mentality of assisted suicide has manifested itself in society. Hello, Chris. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's good to talk to you, Joe. I was wondering if you could start out by telling us a bit about your background, specifically your education and your work. Sure. So I graduated from Wellesley College in 1987 with a degree in biological sciences and computer science. I came to Worcester actually as a PhD student studying physiology. At the same time, I was working as a medical technologist and as an as an EMT. And uh, one of my colleagues, one of my emergency medicine colleagues, was actually um, had just finished his uh, studies as a physician assistant. And I got very interested in the clinical side of things. And so I left uh, research medicine and started at Northeastern University and graduated in 1993 with my physician assistant certificate and a master's in health professions. I immediately started working here in Worcester at St. Vincent Hospital in emergency medicine and spent most of my career there. I was actually there from 93 until 2010. And at the same time, I was also working at a local community college uh, teaching in the paramedic program. So uh, during that time, um, I'm one of those reverts to the faith, and I was confirmed in 2007. Part of that through, you know, this was the time I was having kids, my three boys, I was homeschooling and came back to my faith. Um, I actually, in 2010, left medicine for a while and pursued uh, another PhD in educational leadership in higher education. Um, but in the end, um, God pulled me back. Uh, to clinical medicine, and uh, I started at a small urgent care in in Connecticut because, uh, you know, they would allow me to work just Saturdays. The place closed down, and my boss went back to his roots at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford and brought me with him in the emergency department, so really God brought me right back to emergency medicine. And uh, in that three years that I was gone, a major change had occurred where we started using um, the methotrexate protocol for ectopic pregnancies, which which is still a big debate. You know, the church has not spoken one way or the other about it. And uh, the first time I encountered a patient that came to us where, you know, we had to manage this, first I was shocked that the Catholic hospital had a process to do it. I knew the National Catholic Bioethics Center was against it, 
Um, I spoke with um, a good friend of mine from when I was at St. Vincent Hospital, Monsignor Peter Bolio, who sort of explained to me where the church was um, on this topic. Um, eventually, I just, my conscience wouldn't allow me, I know it was my personal choice, but um, my conscience wouldn't allow me to continue. Uh, it, was, it happened more frequently, even though I was working maybe one day a week, I would get five of these cases in a year. And so I left, and I transitioned to primary care with a doctor, actually, who's um, a fellow parishioner at my parish. And uh, and so now I work in primary care and, and still do some work in, in urgent care. And now my educational pursuits are along bioethics. I've, I've uh, gone through the National Catholic Bioethics Certificate Program, highly recommend it. It's fabulous. That's, of course, where Joe and I, where you and I met. And uh, now I transferred those credits over to Holy Apostles, and I'm pursuing a degree in theology with a concentration in bioethics. This makes uh, it makes you a very good guest for our for our topic today. So, in our podcast today, we're going to be talking about the mentality of assisted suicide. Right now, yeah. although assisted suicide is only legal in a handful of states today it certainly seems that it has been accepted in our culture, including by many medical and healthcare professionals. What factors have brought about this acceptance? So uh, where did this come from? Where did it grow out of? Um, first of all, it comes out of our fallen nature. When you talk about the Hippocratic Oath, you know, mm -hmm. this was written between 500 and 300 B.C., and the oath talks about both the physician and the patient, that the physician will not you know, prescribe a deadly poison to a patient, even if they ask for it. So you can see it was some kind of compulsion or some kind of, of thought that this was a good idea, that either the doctor would um, choose a life that needed ending or that the patient may ask for and that this shouldn't be done. Now, of course, Jesus Christ explicitly revealed to us that all human life has inherent dignity. However, in, uh, in the late 1800s, there was the eugenics movement. Now, the late 1800s, that's where God was being rejected, and, and, and it was really an anti-religious scientism is when science, the term science began, and it was really based on the perfection of man. And uh, man decides what God is rather than God perfecting man. And it's really where the roots of radical autonomy comes from, especially mm -hmm. when it regards our own bodies. This was started by Francis Galton. And uh, his definition was the eugenics is the study of agencies under social control that may improve or Im impair the racial qualities of future generations whether physically or mentally. And in 1905, he talked about three stages of it. First, it should start off as an academic matter. Then it needs to go into practical policy. And then finally, it must be introduced into the national consciousness as a new religion. Well, pretty soon, the, these eugenics records offices popped up, the first one in London in 1904. Berlin followed along in 1905. And this eventually led to the Holocaust. In 1910, um, the infamous Cold Spring Harbors Eugenics Records Office in New York came. 
and then eugenic societies quickly followed. Now, what we saw in the U.S., um, one, uh, we started seeing infanticide by doctors. It's a very famous case, Baby Bollinger in 1915, uh, where the doctor refused life-saving surgery because he felt the baby's life wasn't worth it. And this ended up being a big media splash in Chicago, and there was a movie in support of this doctor called The Black Stork. Um, other things that came about, birth control, including contraception, abortion, sterilization. You know, it's not a coincidence that the Lambeth um, Declaration happened in 1930, right? This is where the Protestants broke from the Catholics and decided that contraception was okay. And the U.S. Um, Protestant churches followed along in 1931. Um, this even came about with the Immigration Act of 1924, which was really meant to keep out, quote, undesirables. And we get IQ testing from this. Now, in terms of the Supreme Court, uh, the big the case is 1927, Buck versus Bell. And this is Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., and this is where they, they, impo they allowed um, forced sterilization on people with low IQs. And, you know, he wrote in his um, majority opinion that three generations of imbeciles are enough when referring to the family that was uh, the center of the court case. And he wrote, it is better for the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offsprings for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifest un manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Now, as a result, we had 32 states that had mandatory sterilization laws, and they weren't repealed until the late 1960s and the early 1970s. But what remained was euthanasia. In 1920, there was a German book called Allowing the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Life, which of course led to the initial destruction of people with physical disabilities. Um, in, uh, interesting, in 1971, uh, Elliot Slater, who's a psychiatrist, editor of the British Journal of Psychiatry, member of the Eugenic Society, wrote an article called A Plea for Voluntary Euthanasia. In that same year, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article called Euthanasia. And in their section on what's called positive euthanasia, that's the active killing, you know, either a doctor actively killing the patient or giving the patient the means to do it. Mm -hmm. At the time, 27% of physicians were in favor of it, and 46% of medical students were in favor of it. And they gave a little breakdown on religion. And of Catholics, 0% favored it. Protestants and Jews had a low acceptance. And anybody who declared themselves as, quote, other, some other religion were 38% in favor of it. And what they wrote was, from the foregoing responses to questionnaires, it is evident that the medical profession faces a difficult problems in changing mores. Especially noteworthy are the attitudes expressed by medical students who will be tomorrow's practicing physicians. In that regard, two questions are unanswerable at present. 
the interrogated medical students were all located at a school where intensive discussions have been in progress since 1966, discussions that have explored in depth the ethical and moral issues confronting modern American physicians. Would similar responses be obtained at other medical schools? Second, will the students' attitudes change as their careers progress? And this just brings me back to Galton's original paradigm. We start off in, the, in academics, then we move to policy, and then we make it a, quote, religion of the people. We sort of put it into the psyche of, of our society. So this is... This is all, a, I see it as all a remnant of, of the eugenics movement that just never went away. That's a, a very, very interesting perspective. What year, again, was the, was the article from, uh, that you referenced? The article on euthanasia? Yes. Those were both, the one in England and the one in the United States were both written in 1971. And then the church, of course, 1980 wrote its declaration on euthanasia. on euthanasia. I'm just wondering if, you know, the medical students in the late 60s and 70s when this article, early 70s when this article would have been written, are going to be those people who are in positions of, of authority within healthcare institutions and within medical societies today. So it's, you know, it, 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 it may have taken that 30 some odd years, but, you know, maybe, there, maybe that uh, article was kind of prophetic. Yeah, the it's the timing is right, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it is. All right, so you are in Massachusetts, and although Massachusetts has not yet legalized assisted suicide, uh, the Massachusetts Medical Association, as well as other state medical associations, have shifted from opposing physician-assisted suicide to taking a position of neutrality on the issue. Can you explain to our audience how this shift occurred and why it's significant. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you just talk about, uh, just mentioned who were the, um, you know, who were the, who, the people that were, were coming of age in the medical uh, right. field, uh, you know, back in the 70s, um, who are now, um, you know, in, in leadership positions. Um, so they switched from opposing to being neutral. Now, of course, there's, as Cardinal Dolan pointed out, there's no such thing as being neutral. To be neutral right. is really accepting assisted suicide. Right. Um, but medical, so medical societies are much easier to manipulate than the political system. Uh, you know, this has been a, a target of um, those who are for assisted suicide for a long time. You know, Oregon did this in 1997. Mm -hmm. But in the last few years, we've seen California in 2015, who then legalized Colorado, Maryland, and D.C. in, 19, in 2016, and of course, Colorado and D.C. Uh, legalized. Uh, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nevada, and Vermont, all um, their medical societies all changed in 2017. Uh, and we saw very recently that the American Medical Association decided to ignore the yeah. recommendations of its ethics committee. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because that, that's a very, very recent development. Yes, it is. And, you know, I find it interesting that Compassion and Choices, 
the the society that started out as the Hemlock Society is now the well-funded organization now that promotes um, assisted suicide. Came out with a handbook for physicians on how to engage your medical societies in two, in 2016. Hmm. So um, they're definitely working at, at that sort of level. That kind of, not a lot, not a major, you know, that draws attention major national level. They're, they're working on these these very local levels. And um, and working the same way through the American Medical Association, because a lot of it has to do with delegates. So what happened here in Massachusetts, um, it started with a poll. We're going to ask our members what they think. And it cost them $25,000. They consulted with Colorado and Maryland because they were both supposedly states that have addressed this, but there were both states that flipped. They got their medical societies to flip from from against to neutral. And they honed questions from those particular surveys in, in Colorado and Maryland. Uh, they passed a resolution that they would include medical students, and we see why that's key, because medical students are much more likely to support it. Mm-hmm. And it was distributed by email. Um, Thank goodness my doc doesn't check her email and doesn't really keep things, uh, you know, doesn't put emails on record. And we got a hard copy in the office. <laughs> so um, because most of the docs that I have talked with have all said, we get so many emails in a day. We didn't even know it was there. We didn't even know it was happening. Well, the results of the survey showed that only that only half even opened the email survey. And of those, the, the total response rate was only 13%. So they based these decisions with only 13% of the people responding. And the key question about opposing, you know, about the position on physician-assisted suicide, now, they reported out the numbers by removing anybody that didn't answer, which, of course, makes the percentages look higher. So the percentages I'm going to give you include those that, that didn't answer. I don't mean don't respond, but who did respond to the survey but did not answer this question. Okay. So based on those numbers, using that denominator, 36.6% um, actually supported, wanted to change to be in favor of assisted suicide. 16.7% wanted to uh, be neutral, 26.4% opposed, and a full 20% didn't answer the question one way or the other. Either they said, I don't know, they said, I, I don't want to, I don't want, I, I don't like any of those three choices, I want some other choice, I don't know what the other choice would be, or they just simply didn't answer the question. Based on these certainly not definitive, um, not a clear um, indication as to how the state physicians felt, they decided to change their position. Mm-hmm. The delegates decided to change the position. Right? It wasn't a full vote. It's just the delegates that decide this. Uh, and another interesting uh, question that they asked was that a one they asked if if people were were familiar with the proposed law here in Massachusetts right. that would legalize it. Eighty one percent said they were not familiar with it. Of those who responded, so this really wasn't about the legislation; it really was about 
activists who were prepared and ready for this. And many of them were those who finished medical school um, in the late 60s and early 70s. Has there been any, um, any response from physicians who, well, either from those who didn't respond at all or for those who were opposed to the change? Has, has there been any, any backlash to the Massachusetts Medical Society changing its position? We had very, very little, disappointingly little. Um, the, 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 the best response we had was uh, through an organization called Massachusetts um, Citizens for Life where they put together what was called Doctor's Day. Um, and there were about 20 physicians and myself, you know, a physician assistant, who were opposed to assisted suicide. And we held a press conference and we lobbied. Uh, we, so we held it at the State House and we lobbied um, our uh, you know, key constituents. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, a, you know, when you think about 22,000 physicians and being able to muster only 20 of them, and most of them from the Boston area. Um, you know, when I talk to people here, um, and most of the boss, myself and the physician I work for, we of course went in and were part of the of the coalition. Um, I talked to my primary care doctor. It's funny because she was one of the delegates. She talked about how rancorous the the meetings were. Um, I talked with another doctor at my uh, parish, who um, was actually unaware, didn't open the email, and was unaware that most of this was going on. So uh, the problem is. It's the silence, right, that's allowing, by doing nothing, we are permitting this to move forward. Do you think that the fact that these medical, these state medical societies, and in fact the AMA, because of their, their actions on this issue, do you think, or, or how much do you think that has an effect on the law in terms of in terms of legalizing assisted suicide? This is hard to know because it's trying to get into people's minds, right? Um, we do know that, that a lot of those states that did, whose medical society switched adopted assisted suicide. It certainly um, it's a, it becomes a huge media talking point. Right. So if you're for assisted suicide, it gives you cover, right? Um, and uh, it allows you to to put that out there as saying, well, look at these doctors who are in favor of it. Um, it, it mostly, I think, it doesn't impact, impact the legislature as so much as it impacts society in general mm-hmm. to see that you know, they, they, their impression is that, well, doctors in Massachusetts are for it. And they don't realize how very few actually really voted. It, it's, really, it's really false. It's not an appropriate impression. So how you influence voters, of course, is how you influence the political process. So in that sense, um, the, the only way to combat this is uh, by going, you know, I, I, I am the co-chair of an organization called Witness for Life. We work in just specifically on assisted suicide and advanced directives. We're in, we work in the Diocese of Worcester. And I work try to work through the parishes as much as possible. There's a huge Catholic population in, in Massachusetts. A lot of them are baptized. They're not in the churches, but they're there. You know, yep, they're... <laughs> no. It's my home state, and, uh, Chris, so I, I yeah, believe me, I right. know. <laughs> you know. 
And so, and a lot of them, you know, come, you know, they, they come to church, but it's more of a social thing than, than uh, a spiritual one. And so by working through those parishes, at least to, um, to educate Catholic voters um, regarding this issue in hopes that if it comes up in a referendum or to get them to write their, legislate, their legislators, that that is how you, you sort of overcome this, what, what has happened with the Massachusetts Medical Society. Chris, what mentality or mindset does the acceptance of assisted suicide foster in society? So I think it's a chicken or egg, right? I think that assisted suicide has been accepted by society because we first have accepted the fact that not all human life has dignity. Mm-hmm. Once you start there, then, then all the rest of these things end up, these horrible things end up occurring. So as I, as I explained above during the eugenics movement back in the 1920s, a book was written, A Life Not Worth of Life. And that was the first official or published call to, um, to euthanize people. Um, this is where we get uh, the pressure to abort, quote, defective children, right? We've seen, you know, Down syndrome. Um, many of us have, have personal experiences with friends, people we know who've been told that their babies should be aborted and they end up being, giving birth to perfectly wonderful children. Um, or, and if they're not, th- that's not the point, right? Um, we have seen infanticide come back again in Belgium, mm-hmm. you know, just like I talked about here in the U.S., um, where the, the doctor, without, the, without even informing the parents, the doctors determined that a baby's life would be filled with too much, quote, suffering, and they allow them to die or they actively euthanize them. Um, so it's, it's accepting that that allows us to accept assisted suicide. And it has to do with that radical autonomy because, you know, we are at the center of our lives and God is what we decide God is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the, the, this guise and allure of autonomy. We even see it, saw it in the Hippocratic Oath, right? Even if my patient asks me, I won't kill them. Um, suffering or the avoidance of suffering gains a value above life itself. Like it's better to die than to suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, there, there's been interesting reports like, um, states worse than death. They've actually pulled people in hospitals and asked them, you know, if you had these conditions, right. would you rather die? So, um, you know, not you know, being confused all the time, being bedridden, um, being uh, requiring a ventilator to breathe. These were all states worse than death to people. Um, and then, again, recently in the news, we saw the skyrocketing rate of suicide, 30% since 1999. Oregon passed assisted suicide in 97. From 99 to, to, to 2016, the, the suicide rate um, has gone up 30%. And um, what I found interesting in drilling down on those numbers 
it's not the people we typically expect, right? You think, oh, the young, the old, um, veterans. No, no. The highest group was ages 45 to 64. That was the group that was committing the most suicides. And in looking at the risk factors, the number two risk factor was physical health problems. So I went and looked at the companion article that talked about suicide prevention that came out from the CDC. And I went to the section on, you know, the risk factors. Not mentioned. They did not mention physical health problems, even though they mentioned all of the other risk factors. So we know it's a risk factor, yet we don't want to talk about it. And now we're going to have what they want to call medical aid in dying, which they say is not suicide. But basically, you're giving a medication for them to have just in case to a group that's at very high risk for committing suicide, which we know is a very impulsive act. Patient has a bad day, they're, they're, you know, things are not going well. To have the medicine sitting by them just in case so they can, they can gulp it down I mean, there's, there's so many ways of wrong in that. I don't know how to, you know, how that can possibly be accepted. So do you think, just as a follow-up question to that, do you think people are being pressured into, whether it be assisted suicide or even suicide, um, even in states where it's not legal? So we've actually seen some court cases recently and where people have been prosecuted for talking their you know, significant other, whoever, whatever person they're in a relationship, into committing suicide, right? <laughs> and somehow we know that's wrong, right? If the if the girlfriend is convincing the 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 boyfriend who's in his truck, right. you know, to pick up that gun and shoot himself, that we we recognize that that's wrong. Okay, so tell me how philosophically that's wrong. Um, one thing that I saw that also concerned me, um, and this data came out. Um, I think at the beginning of the year, it was about the Alzheimer's death rate. Uh, they, they came out with a report of, of, of all-cause mortality, and besides suicide or so-called accidental unintentional deaths going up, the only other category that went up since 1999 was Alzheimer's. Every other medical condition, respiratory illnesses, cardiac illnesses, um, neurological illnesses, they all went down. We all got, the medical system got much better. But for some reason, Alzheimer's not only went up a little, went up 25%. And I can't help but question whether it is this mentality of assisted suicide and the so-called life not worth life. And a lot of this, when you see the research on the feeding tubes, for example, Mm -hmm. um, the very weak evidence that shows that we shouldn't be putting feeding tubes into patients with dementia. Um, You know, most of the studies are based on people who are already quite advanced in their illness. And and of course, you're not going to see any difference between a tube and not a tube because because both groups were so very sick to begin with. Um, When I... I was talking with with a man that came to our office to talk about hospice, you know, sort of promoting their services. Mm -hmm. And I asked about feeding tubes, and he was quite, because I said, you know, why won't you let patients who are on hospice get a feeding tube? It's a very simple procedure. And, uh, and 
their criteria was if the patient's going to die, their criterion was if patients were going to die within two weeks, then um, they are expected to die within two weeks, then they shouldn't get a feeding tube. And I said, well, you know, anybody who's really sick and is starved for two weeks will die pretty much. So how is that really saying, well, they were at the end of their life when anybody um, under those circumstances would die if they weren't to eat for two weeks? And it really gave him pause to to think whether that really was a legitimate uh, way of looking at whether a patient needed a feeding tube or not. In her second podcast, Ms. Carrera speaks to how the mentality of assisted suicide leads to the undertreatment of patients and discusses how patients can recognize and combat this mentality in their interactions with healthcare professionals. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them and the National Catholic Bioethics Center, please click the donate button on our website. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.